Well, it's an honor to teach you tonight. And tonight we begin a new series on a special book in the Bible, not a very long book, but a very special one. Ruth and Esther are the only women in the Bible who have an entire book devoted to their story. And they're, they're unique when you compare the two. The book of Ruth tells the story of a Gentile who married a Jew and became an ancestor of the Messiah. The book of Esther tells the story of a Jew who married a Gentile and saved the entire Jewish nation from destruction so the Messiah could be born. The book of Ruth begins with a great famine and ends with the birth of one baby, while the book of Esther begins with a great feast and ends with the death of about 75,000 people. The book of Ruth mentions God 25 times in just four chapters, while the book of Esther doesn't even mention God at all. And yet both of these books in your Bible, named after women who are their main characters, both of these books teach us that God is always working behind the scenes, whether you see him or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel him or not, God is always working behind the scenes to fulfill his will and lead his people. And so tonight we begin our study of Ruth, and Ruth is a story that's very special. Um, I hope this is you, some of you. Ruth is a story for people who wonder what to do when God's voice seems silent and his presence feels distanced. Ruth is a story for people who sometimes wonder if God really cares when one tragedy after another attacks their family. Ruth is a story for people who wonder whether living a life of integrity during tough times is even worth it. And Ruth is also a story for people who wonder if their ordinary, everyday lives of faithfulness even matter in the end. Ruth is a story of redemption. And brothers and sisters, redemption is a very powerful word. Redemption means to release from bondage through the payment of a price. It means to deliver someone from their situation or from their enemies. To redeem someone means to ransom or rescue, to reclaim or recover, to loose or liberate, to unbind or unshackle, to save or to set free. And that's why we will see shadows of Jesus all along this redemption road in the book of Ruth. And so we'll just dive in tonight. I believe God has something to say to us. We're told in the opening verse that Ruth's story takes place Quote, in the days when the judges ruled. This was after Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, but it's before there were any kings in place to rule the nation. And it was a turbulent, troubled time of spiritual darkness. And, and if you've read the book of Judges, you recognize this. The people would sin, and then enemies would conquer them, and they'd go into bondage, and they'd eventually cry out to God, and he would mercifully raise up a judge to deliver them. But they'd hardly, no sooner get delivered than that cycle would start all over again. And because their sin got worse and worse each time, 
Israel was gradually sliding into spiritual oblivion. It's a helpless, hopeless time. And a hopeless, helpless time is a perfect time for God to step on the scene and come on the case and do something miraculous. Here's the summary of the times in which Ruth lived in the days of the judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no spiritual leadership really, so everybody just kind of made it up as they went along. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Sounds a lot like the day we live in. Now, to make matters worse, the book of Ruth begins with a famine in the land. Elimelech and Naomi, that's the couple we meet at the beginning, they know exactly what causes a famine in Israel. It's when the people refuse to keep God's commandments and he withholds rain from their land, from their crops, and from their field. That's what he said he would do, and that's what he has done. So they know exactly what has caused this famine, but instead of turning to God, they make things much worse. They turn away from God and they go to the pagan land of Moab. Here it is, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab, and they didn't just visit, they continued there. Now, that doesn't mean much to you or me today, but in that day, it is unthinkable that Israelites would turn to Moab for answers. Unthinkable. After all, Moab was the sworn enemy of God's people. Moab's sordid history began in an act of incest, when Abraham's nephew Lot slept with his own firstborn daughter. The very name Moab or Miab, it means the mother's father. And it literally, the name of this country points back to that sinful moment as their country began. But there was even more than that. Moab had refused to help the fledgling nation of Israel when they were fragile and weak and they were just getting out of captivity in Egypt and they could have used some help, but Moab refused. Moab was the nation that hired the prophet Balaam to try and put a curse on Israel. Moab was the nation that led Israel later into idolatrous sin and Moab was the nation in the book of Judges that actually invaded the nation of Israel for 18 years. So why in the world would anybody turn to Moab? Why in the world would anybody take their family to Moab? And why in the world would anybody stay in Moab? God didn't like this pagan nation. He said in the Psalms, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia will I try. And Moab's just my washpot. That's an allusion to a custom in the day that, that when a country was conquered, they would make the, the captives wash the feet of those who had conquered. God said, Moab is nothing better than a washpot. Through the prophet Jeremiah, 
God said, Moab shall be destroyed from being a people because Moab has magnified himself against the Lord. And then there's this one. This is the worst of all. In the law in Deuteronomy, because of all of this stuff, God said, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. So it's pretty serious what's going on here. And, and so the obvious question is this. If that is God's attitude toward Moab, why would you turn to Moab? Why would you take your family to Moab? And for heaven's sake, why would you stay in Moab? Elimelech and Naomi knew that it was against the law of God for Israelites to marry Moabites. But then both of their sons, because they were in that land, because they were far away from God's people, both of their sons ended up marrying Moabite women. Malan married a girl named Ruth. Chilean married a girl named Orpah. And they all lived in the pagan country of Moab for more than a decade. I think part of what's going on here, unfortunately, is that Elimelech and Naomi, they had the same self-centered attitude that a lot of people have today. They ran into some difficulty. There was a famine in the land. They got offended at God because he didn't answer their prayer. It wasn't easy. And so then they turn away from God because they're offended at him, and they turn to the world. And they never dreamed what a terrible price they would pay when they went to Moab. They thought they had it bad when they had a temporary famine, but they turned a temporary famine. They traded that for three family funerals. And by the time we catch up with this family in the opening verses of the book of Ruth, Elimelech is gone and both of their sons are gone. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. And then they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. And then Malan and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman, Naomi, was left of her two sons and her husband. She has been bereaved three times. She's had three funerals in her family. All she's got left are two daughter-in-laws, and they are Moabites. And so that seems like a little bit of kind of peculiar history and we don't get all the details, but I would say this at the onset of tonight. Naomi's story is really our story in many ways. We've all experienced failures and funerals and trials and tears. We've all had questions and we've all had fears. We've all had problems and we've all had pain. We've all had setbacks and sickness and heartaches and hard times. We've all had that just like Naomi. Do you know that every book of your Bible talks about suffering in some way or another? Because suffering is just part of being human ever since sin entered the world. If you think you're going to get through life without having any suffering, you're going to be unpleasantly surprised because it's part of the human condition. It's mentioned in every single book of the Bible in some way. We can't avoid suffering, but we can choose to trust God in the middle of our suffering. We can always turn to Him. That's where Naomi missed it. That's where Elimelech missed it. Instead of turning to God in the midst of that famine, they turned away from him and they turned to the world. 
They could have returned to God, but they turned to the world. But you know, you can always return to God no matter how long it's been. You can always return to God no matter how bad you've messed up. You can always return to God no matter what your attitude was when you left Him. And I want to say to somebody, and maybe not even in this room tonight, maybe somebody that's watching online, I want to say to you that you can always come back. You can always make your way back to God. You can always return. And thankfully, at the very beginning of this book, after a string of bad decisions and losses and heartbreak, that's what Naomi chooses to do. And the word, the Hebrew word return, it's translated different ways in English, but the Hebrew word for return appears 12 times in the 22 verses of chapter 1 because that's what this is about. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Do you know why? Because she had heard, even over there in the far country of Moab, she had heard something. She had heard how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. The famine was over and people were celebrating. And a long way from Bethlehem, Naomi heard that there was bread in the house of bread. And so she left the place where she was and she and her two daughters-in-law with her and they headed on the way. They started their journey to return unto the land of Judah. Even backsliders in the land of Moab had heard of God's blessing in Judah. God had visited his people. The famine was over and Judah, the place of praise, was once again living up to its reputation. Can I tell you something? The best thing you can do for your backslider in your family, your prodigal that's in your life, the very best thing you can do is help pastor and this church be a great church, be a vibrant church, be an alive church, be an apostolic church, be a worshiping church. You say, but I'm concerned about them. You need a good place for them to come back to. You need them to hear on the bar stool how God is blessing in a Sunday service at CCC. You need for them to hear from you how wonderful it is to be serving God. The news from Judah needs to reach way over into Moab. Naomi made a decision to get up and go back, just like another backslider in Jesus' most famous parable. He also had made a bad choice. He also went to a far country. He also experienced a terrible famine. He also lost everything. But he also finally made a decision to get up and go back. Here it is. We call him the prodigal son. You remember? And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? There's bread over there. And I perish with hunger. So here's what I'm going to do. I sure haven't been perfect. I've sure messed up a lot of things. But I got this left. I've got one choice I can make. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back. That's what I'm going to do. I will arise and go to my father. And when I get there, I'm not going to parade in with a puffed up, proud attitude. I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of the hired servants. I don't care what position you give me when I come back. I don't care if I have to sit 
somewhere off to the side, not in a place of prominence. I don't need to be the son in the bedroom in the house. I can be a servant in the barn or in the field, but I just got to get back because I heard in the far country that there was blessing in Father's house. That's what we need to be praying, for people to come to themselves. There are far too many backsliders in the province of New Brunswick. They know better than what they're living and where they're living. But you fighting with them is not going to bring them back. You shaming them and guilting them and nagging them and arguing, that's not going to bring them back. But if you'll have love for them and if you'll pray for them and mostly if you'll just enjoy Father's house and if you'll make Father's house a place of praise and love and joy and peace and miracles and the supernatural, guess what? They're going to hear out in the far country that there's something good going on in Father's house. I wish you'd lift your hands and pray for somebody you know that they would come to themselves, that they would have the courage to get up and go back, that they would have the courage to stand up out of their sin, stand up out of their situation, and just head for Father's house. Here's what I know. God is waiting to welcome them back. He's not going to judge them, push them away. He's going to love them and receive them. There's bread in Father's house. There's joy and there's peace and there's forgiveness and there's fulfillment and there's blessing in Father's house. So I address any prodigal that might happen by this webcast or watch it later. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter how anybody else feels. It doesn't matter how anybody else responds. Don't be concerned about the consequences of your sin. And don't worry how long restoration will take. Just get up and just go back to Father's house. Because it's not just the Father waiting to welcome you. you got a whole lot of brothers and sisters waiting to welcome you back and cheer you on. Now conversations, conversations dominate the book of Ruth. 56 out of 85 verses contain dialogue in the book of Ruth. Conversations dominate everything. What can I say? It's a book named after a woman. Conversations dominate everything. I'm done. And the first conversation begins here with three women on the road back to Bethlehem. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, go return each to her mother's house. Go back to Moab. That's strange. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, my husband, my sons, and with me. You've been very kind to me, and I'm praying that God will be very kind to you. I'm praying that the Lord will grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. I'm praying that you'll find somebody among all of your relatives that will marry you and look after you. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Now we have three women on the side of the road, all weeping. This is quite interesting. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. No, Naomi, we want to go with you. We want to go back to Bethlehem. You heard that there's bread in the house of the Lord, so we want to go back. But it's not quite that easy, is it? Naomi is an Israelite, so she's returning home. Though it has been a long time, 
over 10 years, and though it most certainly will feel awkward when she shows up, at least Naomi has roots back in Judah. But Ruth and Orpah, that's not the case. They're Moabites. For them, this is not a return trip home. For them, this is a major move to a strange new country. To say the least, life in Israel is not going to be easy for two Moabite women, two Moabite widows. And so maybe that's why Naomi tries to discourage them from going back. More than one time she does. Maybe she's just trying to protect them from the pain. And she, she wants them to go to Moab where it's more comfortable and familiar. Or maybe Mo, Naomi has a selfish motive. Maybe she just doesn't want anybody at home to see that she obviously broke the law of God because she has Moabite daughters-in-law. Her sons broke the law of God. She and her husband let her sons marry Moabite people. And so if Ruth and Orpah show up with her when she goes home, they are living proof of her family's season and sin. So I don't know. I, I can't read Naomi's mind. It's not indicated in Scripture. Maybe she's trying to protect her reputation a little bit. If she shows up alone, she doesn't have to answer any questions. But it really doesn't matter because ultimately the decision isn't hers. The decision is theirs to make. And here's the decision. Will they go with their mother-in-law or will they choose to go back and remain in familiar territory? That is the decision. That is the question. That is the turning point for anybody that leaves sin and comes to God. Am I going to go forward into this new unfamiliar territory? I don't know anything about it. It's a little scary. I'm not sure how it's all going to turn out. Am I going to go forward there or am I going to retreat back to what has been familiar? And when you first come to God, all of us remember, it's so much easier to just stay with the status quo, isn't it? It's so much easier to just kind of keep going on in the same lifestyle, the same sin, the same comfort zone. But here's what I promise you. If you can ever have the determination to say, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it takes. I don't care who goes with me or who doesn't go with me. I am going to Father's house. I'm going to the land of bread. I'm going to Bethlehem. I'm getting out of here if you will do that. There's a blessing in your future. There's a blessing on your horizon. And Naomi said, she tries again. Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? She's arguing with them on the side of the road. Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they might be your husbands? No, turn again, my daughters, and go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and I could bear sons, would you wait for them till they're grown and could be your husband? No, my daughters, it grieves me much for your sakes. Now watch this, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. It was customary in ancient times for a childless widow to marry her husband's brother in order to continue the family line. That was customary. That has nothing to do specifically even with Scripture. It was a custom in many ancient worlds. But all of Naomi's sons are dead, so even if that was the case, there's no hope of that happening here. So she said, I have nothing to offer you. I don't have any more sons. There are no husbands coming your way from my family. 
My condition is even worse than yours because you're widowed, but I'm widowed. You're childless, and I'm childless, but I'm old, and I'm also bitter against God. I'm worse off than you. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So don't come with me because your life might become just as bitter as mine. You know what I feel like, ladies? I feel like God has forsaken me. If we're honest, Naomi is not a very good witness for Jehovah at this point. She is so focused. Please hear me. She's so focused on her disappointments that she can't see God's hand at work. She paints such a bleak, dark picture that Orpah finally decides to say goodbye and return to Moab. The the picture is so dark. The picture is so bleak. You know, some people, if they're the commercial for God, nobody would want to serve God. Some people, if they're the commercial for church, my goodness, people are going to run the other way because they are so focused on every little disappointment they've had in life that they just carry that like a dark cloud everywhere they go. And you feel their attitude when you talk to them. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God has forsaken me. God isn't with me. God is just not doing good by me. And I don't know what's going on. And they come very close to accusing God of injustice, injustice. And and here's the thing. God is just and God is merciful and God is kind and God is good and I stand here tonight and I don't care what has gone on in my life or your life. God is so good to me. I have no complaints. I have no story of defeat or depression or disillusionment. I will not stand here and say, the hand of the Lord is against me. The hand of the Lord has been not done nothing but pour blessings on my life. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And that's what Naomi can't seem to get through her head. She's literally standing on the side of the road. She's got these two younger women that want to go with her from a pagan country to the house of bread to Bethlehem. They want to go with her, and she's trying to talk them out of it. Because after all, it's not that good living for God. After all, it's not that blessed living for God. It's ridiculous. Look at this. And they lifted up their voice. And wept again. There's a lot of crying going on in this chapter. And Orpah, she had enough. Naomi, it doesn't sound like this is any big deal. It doesn't sound like this is so great. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye, but not Ruth. It didn't matter how down and depressing Naomi was. She couldn't talk Ruth out of it. But Ruth clave unto her. And Naomi still trying to talk her out of going back to Israel. Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and she's gone back unto her gods. Imagine sending somebody away to false gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Ruth, look at Orpah. She's going back to Moab where it's easier. She's going to have a home. She's going to have a husband. She's going to have children sooner than you will. She'll have an easier life than you will. She's going to be accepted in Moab, and you might be rejected if you go to Israel. 
Ruth, to go with me means it's going to be harder. To go with me means it's going to take longer. To go with me means you're going to have to leave your past and change your life and live up to all the commandments of God. And You're going to have to... Have you ever met anybody like that? When they try to witness, they just about chase people down the street, out through the parking lot. Because their idea of God is, man, if you do this, it's serious business. If you do this, you've got to commit for life. If you do this, you've got to keep the rules. Those people have never locked into a simple truth. Jesus is not my rule master. He's my Lord and my Savior. I don't have a rule between him and me. I have a relationship between him and me. I do what he wants me to do because I love him for who he is to me, not because he forces me. Ruth, to go with me means you're going to have to leave your past. You're going to have to change your life. Ruth, it would be a lot easier for you if you just turn back now. Get out while you can. That's really what's going on here. And now we come in the middle of all that drama and trauma. It's one of my favorite rhyming couplets, drama and trauma. Because I meet so many people who have nothing but drama and trauma. You don't have to point, but with, the, with an upraised hand, does anybody know anybody in your circle, in your wide circle of friends that has lots of drama and trauma? Anybody? No, 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 not us. No, not us, Pastor. We're so scared of their drama and trauma that we can't even raise our hand to indicate we know who they are. And in the middle of all this drama and trauma, we come to the most famous passage in the book of Ruth. These two verses contain the one decision that puts Ruth on redemption road. Now, if you've been around for a while like I have, you've heard these two verses, this little passage read at weddings. But this is not a wedding commitment. This is a conversion commitment. It's powerful. And here's what Ruth said while Naomi is pointing at Orpah and saying, you need to go back. You need to follow her. It'll be easier if you don't try this. It'll be easier if you don't come with me. It'll be easier if you go back to your life of sin and Moab and you don't even do this. It's easier for you just to go back. And here's what Ruth said. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. Because here's how it's going to be, Naomi. Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Wherever you die, I'll die. And there will I be buried. Even if you die first, I'm sticking around to die wherever you die. And I'm going to be buried. This is not just a commitment while it's convenient. I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts thee and me. Naomi, hear me. Stop telling me to leave you or go back or give up or stop following you. Stop that. You don't understand, Naomi. I've been converted and there is nothing back there for me anymore. I'm not going back because I have nothing to go back for. Yes, 
It has been difficult for me losing my husband. It has been difficult for me leaving my familiar life. It has been difficult for me, and obviously it's been pretty bitter for you. But you see, Naomi, I have made up my mind to serve God regardless of the cost or the consequences. Hear me, me, Naomi. I'm not following God because I love you. No, I'm following you because I love God. God comes first in my life. Can I translate that for you? I am not here. I'm not following God because I love this church. I love this church because I'm following God. God comes first, church is second. I love his church because I love him first. I love his people because I love him first. So if every single one of you choose to backslide tomorrow, thumb your nose at God, walk away, it doesn't affect one thing. I was on the phone today about a situation in another country where somebody, a great disappointment, just kind of turned their back on God and messed up in sin and so many people are affected and I was talking to a pastor dealing with it. I said, that doesn't affect anything. That church is going to be fine because those people, they weren't following a man. They were following Jesus. And so it's going to be rough. It's going to be shaky. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm not just in love with the church. I'm in love with Jesus. And because I'm in love with him, I love this. That means you can't shake me. You couldn't push me out of here with a bulldozer. You couldn't knock me out of here with a two by four because I am committed to God. And that's why I'm committed to his church. Don't get it backwards. There's so many people that they're, they like the church for a while. They like God's people for a while. And then somebody does something that offends them. And you would think that God himself had slapped them across the face. God didn't let you down. God didn't change. God didn't disappoint you. If people disappoint you, that's a good chance for you to stand and look in the mirror and say, was I doing this for people or was I doing this for God? Was I just serving the opinion of people or am I serving the opinion of God? Ruth said to Naomi, I'm not following God because I love you. I'm following you because I love your God. So, Naomi, my decision is non-negotiable. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Where you die, I die. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. It's a done deal. That's a great spirit to have in you when you first come to God. That's a great spirit, a great determination to have in your mind when you first start serving Jesus. You don't have to understand all the intricacies of the Pentecostal faith and the apostolic doctrine to just serve Jesus. Here's how it works, and it's why God has a church. Here's how it works. When you first start serving Jesus, make up in your mind, just get looking around. Don't look at the carnal people. Don't look at the grouchy people. Don't look at the mad people. Don't look at the disconnected people. Don't look at the disillusioned people. Don't look at the disappointed people. Don't look at the depressed people. If there's anybody left, please raise your hand now. Don't look at all them. Look at somebody that is so joyful in the God of their salvation. Look for a worshiper and say, your God, my God. Your people, my people. 
I'm watching how you live, church, because how you live, that's how I'm going to live. Wherever you die, whatever hill you die on, that's the hill I'm dying on. (laughs) Sounds very similar to what Jesus taught us. He said, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here's his question. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? So Jesus' example is a building project. But your life is a building project. And before you begin serving God before you begin some new phase of dedication or consecration, you really need to ask yourself, am I serious about this? Have I counted what it's going to cost me? Am I going to be able to finish this? Because you don't get extra points just for starting. You don't get extra points just for every, every two months you've got some new kind of fly by the seat of your pants dedication or consecration. You don't get extra points for that. I'll tell you, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's something to be said about setting your face like a flint and you just don't look to the left or to the right. That's what, that's what Ruth is talking about. And so finally, Naomi gives up. It's a wonderful thing when you can outlast The carnal people. It's wonderful. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her. I'm not changing Ruth. No matter how many times I said, you should go back. I can't change her mind. When she saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Now that's a little ambiguous in the Hebrew language. So it's translated correctly, but it doesn't say what I'm curious about. She left speaking unto her. My question for how long? We don't know if she just if it means that she just stopped talking about this subject, or it could mean she didn't speak to her for the rest of the trip all the way back to Bethlehem because she's mad. That could be. We just don't know. Curious minds want to know. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem, all the city was moved about them. All the city was wondering about these women that just walked in the gate. And here's their question. Is that Naomi? This is like bona fide church foyer kind of conversation. Is that Naomi? (laughs) I haven't been anywhere on a jet, so it's not jet lag. When they saw that Ruth's, when, when she saw that Ruth's mind was made up, Naomi finally gives up trying to convince her to go back to Moab. And so they continue on the journey. They finally get to Bethlehem. It's that little town of Bethlehem. You know, we sing it every year, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Well, it really was. Everybody there knows everybody else's business. Outsiders that come in are immediately suspect. Gossip in Bethlehem spreads faster than wildfire. It is, oh, little town of Bethlehem. So when Naomi shows up after 10 years away, and she just shows up unannounced, and she has a Moabite daughter-in-law in tow, it created a little stir in the town. It created a little talk in the foyer. Perhaps those people were joyful to see her. Is that Naomi? But you and I both know that it's probably more likely they were a little bit judgmental. I wish there was an inoculation that we could take to not make us judgmental about people that are trying to crawl out of sin and shame and hurt and pain. You can almost hear them. 
Looks like that time in Moab really aged Naomi, didn't it? No wonder I heard that her husband and both her sons died. Life has been cruel to her. Look at her. Sin sure hasn't favored her very much. I think God's probably judging her because she left here and went there. She's been living with Moabites, you know. You can almost hear them. And Naomi's not dumb. She came from there. She can see them staring. And she can hear them whispering. So Naomi just stands in the middle of the foyer, the town, sorry. And she just cuts to the chase. And she just addresses all of her old neighbors. And she just tells them exactly what has happened and exactly how she feels. It's kind of sad. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me pleasant. That's what Naomi means. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's exactly opposite of what we sing in all those wonderful worship songs. God hasn't been good to me. God hasn't been kind to me. God has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord brought me home again empty. So why are you calling me pleasant? Why are you calling me Naomi? Seeing that the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. I'm messed up because I don't feel like God has been faithful to me. I'm messed up because I prayed and I didn't get my answer. I'm messed up because I had it going pretty good and then God allowed this situation and it just totally devastated me. So you can call me Mara. You can call me bitter. All she has left is bitterness. She used to be full, now she's empty. She used to be happy, now she's sad. Mara was the place, if you remember in your Bible reading in Exodus, Mara was the place of bitter waters where Israel murmured against God and complained about God's dealing with them. And now Naomi is doing exactly what that name means. It's very appropriate. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. She blames God for everything. She doesn't even remember that, wait a minute, it was our family's decision to leave Bethlehem, Judah, and to move to Moab. God didn't force us to go out and sin. God didn't force us to go to that pagan country. God didn't do any of that. We did that. It was our decision. No, she doesn't remember any of that. And there are all kinds of people that want to blame God when they've made some of the mistakes that landed them in the place they're in right now. But they want to blame God for everything that's happened. She should be broken in repentance before God. But instead of being broken, she's just bitter. And i got to say one more time, Naomi has not been a very good witness for Jehovah up to this point. Isn't it amazing that somehow Ruth found God despite the dysfunction of God's people? Ruth had to climb over a lot to get to God. I'm coming to a close. The problem with Naomi is that she has totally forgotten the story of Joseph. Joseph was in her lineage. Joseph was in her country. Joseph was an Israelite. She's forgotten his story. Joseph was also taken to a foreign country. Joseph was sold as a slave. Joseph was framed by an adulteress. Joseph was locked up in prison. 
Joseph, if anybody in the Bible had reason, he had reason to say, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Very similar situation. But Joseph never once said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Here's Joseph's testimony. He said this to his brothers. As for you, you thought evil against me. You tried to do me in. Life tried to turn against me. Situations and circumstances tried to conspire against me. But my God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph said, I don't care that you tried to kill me, hurt me, sell me, get rid of me. That doesn't matter. God took me in the middle of all your manipulation and he lifted me to the throne of Egypt and he's using me to save the world of my day. And so you meant it for evil, but my God meant it for good. I address somebody here in this place, not because I have a gift of any kind of prophetical understanding. I have a good understanding of the law of averages. And the law of averages would say that somebody here, you've struggled with something that's very bitter in your life. You've struggled with something that's extremely disappointing. You've struggled with something that you just don't understand. You've struggled with things that other people did to you. You've even struggled with questions of why could God allow this to happen to me? If I could put in you the spirit of Joseph and pull out of you the spirit of Naomi, Naomi would say to you, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I'm kind of mad at God. I just don't get God. But the spirit of Joseph would say this, Life might have meant it for evil. My enemies might have meant it for evil. My circumstances might not be good, but my God is working for my good. See, that's the thing in the book of Ruth. You don't really see God just intervening directly, but he never takes his hand off the steering wheel. He's guiding everything in this story, even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't recognize it. Chapter 1 ends with a subtle word of hope, and it's where we'll end tonight. They've now arrived back in Bethlehem, and here it is. It's just kind of thrown in there. In the beginning of barley harvest. They come back to Bethlehem in a time of blessing, in a time of harvest. The famine is over physically, and the famine is about ready to be over spiritually as well. Last verse of chapter 1. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, just to put a little tension in there, they've still got to figure out how to deal with that. Her daughter-in-law came with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. Somebody say Bethlehem. They came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And so Naomi lands back there. When she gets back there, she looks at the whole town and says, Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I'm upset with God. If she could only lift her eyes beyond her present circumstances. If she could only lift her eyes beyond her feelings. If she could only lift her eyes beyond her disappointments. 
No wonder the Bible says, I will lift up mine eyes under the hills from whence cometh my help. Sometimes you've got to look above your current situation and you've got to look above everything that's gone wrong and you've got to look above all the people that are messing with you. You've got to look above it. Naomi, she can't bring herself to do that yet. She's still bitter. She's still disappointed. She's still sad. If she could only see what God's up to in the middle of her disappointment. She doesn't know it yet. But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess, is going to become the great-grandmother of Israel's most beloved King David, and it's going to happen right here in this little town of Bethlehem. If she could only get her eyes off what her eyes can see, and if she could only get her eyes on God, the Almighty hasn't dealt bitterly with her. He's setting her up for a blessing that she can't even comprehend. She certainly has no idea that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the Moabitess, is going to become an ancestor of the Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of the whole world. And he also will be born in this little town of Bethlehem. Before this is all over, heaven will summon angels and they'll direct shepherds and they'll all converge on a spot in this little town. Yes, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and he will declare himself to be the bread of life because he's the answer to every need. And I end part one of this little Bible study. It's not very much. It's just a simple little book in the Old Testament part of your Bible. But here's the message. Even when God's voice seems silent and even when his presence seems distant you can take it to the bank every time God is working for your good God is setting you up for a miracle God is setting you up for a blessing God is setting you up for your future but you can't see it right now and so I came to teach this simple little lesson, just a single chapter of a simple little book, all to say to you, you need to lift up your eyes off of your current circumstances. There is a silver lining in that cloud. There is a blessing in the middle of that trial. There is a future in those dashed hopes. You just can't see it now. But just like Naomi, if you can hang on to God for just one more chapter for her and she's going to find out that God was up to something the entire time. All the while she grumbled all the way back to Bethlehem. All the while she was trying to talk her daughter-in-laws out of coming with her because this is too bad. This is too hard. I'm too messed up. I'm too bitter. All that time God, her attitude didn't put him off at all. He was still working on her behalf even when she was mad at him. He was still working on her behalf even when she didn't understand him. God was still working on her behalf. And God is still working on your behalf even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, even when you don't recognize it, even when you're kind of mad about what he's allowed in your life today. I assure you, God has not forgotten. He is not unjust. He is ever faithful. And he is working all things for your good.
I'm done. Would you lift up your hands and receive that word from the Lord into your spirit? You don't just need it in your head by listening to the lesson. You need it in your spirit. You need to get that word in your spirit. God is working for my good. God is working no matter what I see. God is working no matter how it feels. God is working even though it's bad right now. Oh, I need more than that. I need you to lift up your voice with those hands. Maybe some of you would like to join these that are already on your feet. Would you lift up your praise to the Lord? Would you lift up your prayer to the Lord? Would you thank God that he's working for you? Prayer warriors, lift up your voice right now. We need you. Oh, yes, Jesus. There it goes. I know the journey has been long and the journey has been rough and it's been tough. I know there are all kinds of things arrayed against you, but God came to remind you in this simple little book in the Old Testament, I'm working for your good even when you can't discern it, even when you can't see me, even though you think you've got it all figured out and every chapter's going to be bad. We're one chapter away from me turning it all around. We're one chapter away from me revealing what I've been up to. That's not just Ruth. That's not just Naomi. That's you. You're one page away from God unveiling what he's up to in your life. Oh, I wish I could get somebody to just praise him for a minute. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because you never know who's beside you or around you, in front of you or behind you. Would you reach over to somebody near you? Would you lay your hand on their shoulder? And let's just pray one for another before we leave. Would you do that right now? You might not know anything that they're walking through. They probably don't know anything that you're walking through. But here's one thing that we all know. God is faithful. God is in charge. God is still on the throne. And I want to tell you tonight... God is still at work in your life. It's just one more page. It's just one more chapter until he unveils what he's been up to. The blessing is coming. The answer is coming. The miracle is coming. The provision is coming. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Reto lo shorabaha terraba korabaha. Mando rebo lodo la bashon de rebakai. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Shoreba le dalabashon de rebeke terabasa. Eto roba le do rebasia mama tokosa. Sustain your people, O oh God. Strengthen your people, O oh Jesus. Yes, God. Yes, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.